You are listening to a podcast from Vineyard Church of Augusta. For more information, visit vineyardaugusta.org. We're in week four of this series, The Mystery of Faith, a Lenten journey through the Apostles' Creed. Um, If you're like me and you were not raised in a very liturgical tradition, right, maybe the season of Lent um, is kind of new to you or foreign to you, um, this is the season leading up to Easter, right? And it's when we're preparing our hearts through repentance, fasting, practices like that where we're really going inward in order that we might die with Christ, that we might be raised with Christ on Easter Sunday. Um, and, and what we're doing this, this season is we're walking through the Apostles' Creed, which is the oldest written um, confession that we have of the Christian faith. It's, it's still the confession today that, that is recited throughout churches all around the world of various different denominations and traditions and backgrounds. Um, it's still frequently used in, in like baptism classes and things like that, of teaching people what are the basics of what we believe as Christians. And I'm really excited. This week, this week we're on week four, the fourth thing that we believe as Christians, is that we believe in the universal church. Now, before we dive straight into that, though, I want to I back up a little bit. If, if you were here last Sunday, um, you heard a great sermon on the Holy Spirit by Pastor Reese. Um, if you're on the podcast right now, hit pause, stop this, go back, listen, then come back. It'll make more sense. Um, but he talked last week about one of the main things that we believe that the Holy Spirit does for us is that he helps us to pray, Right? I think you don't even have to be a very religious person to understand that something is hardwired in us as human beings to pray, right? I've known, I've known agnostics and atheists to pray when, like, it really hits the fan, you know? Like, stuff gets really difficult, or that's often the first instinct we have if we're exploring faith for the first time. It might be to try to pray, right? Um, so that so, sort of comes naturally um, but, but oftentimes, uh, we find that prayer itself just, it actually becomes hard. Something we very naturally want to do, we find difficult. Um, this is why the disciples asked Jesus, will you teach us to pray? These were good Jewish boys. They grew up, they knew all the prayers, right? They knew how to do this. But they said, there's more, teach us to pray. And this is, again, at least part of why Jesus sent us the Holy Spirit. The Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, as Reese read last week and unpacked from Romans 8, right? A spontaneous prayer may come about rather effortlessly, but, but then sustaining that prayer is really hard. Have you ever tried to pray for something for a really long time? Prayer gets really hard when it seems like there's no answer coming, Right? And so I want to start with this question today. I'm going to ask for some crowd participation in a moment here. But are are you still holding on to hope for an unanswered prayer? Like, is there something in your life? Don't shout it out. I mean, you can. But like, is there something in your life that you are still holding out hope for that as as of today has not yet been answered? Can you name that to yourself? Maybe that's really painful. Maybe you're like, Roger, this is not what I wanted to think about coming in this morning. Thanks for making me feel really good about life. You know? There's hope. There is hope. But can you name that thing even just to yourself? And here's what I want to invite you guys to do. Would, would you share those with me for a moment so I can share them with folks? I will not share your name. I will not share anything. If there's like sensitive details about who you are or whatever, I won't share. But would you text me what it is? This is only going to work if you guys participate. So... Um, Otherwise, I can just move on. Um, but jump to the next slide. There's my phone number, if you don't already have it. Um, 
Facebook Live people, you can't see it. I'm sorry, I, I feel weird about putting my phone number just on the internet. I, I get all the same spam calls you do. I don't know why it should bother me. But what is the unanswered prayer that you are like holding on to hope for? I see, I see thumbs moving. We'll just give it a second. Someone said, I'm holding out for prayer that my daughter will make good decisions. Another child one, praying for my son's salvation. Full recovery from an accident a year ago. Restoration for my family. Salvation for an atheist sibling. That kids would come back to relationship with the Lord. Here's one for a parent. That my father, discovering that the love of Jesus can forgive his transgressions. Healing our son. Okay, you guys can stop. There's so many. (laughs) My son walked away from the Lord, but God promised me that he would return to him. I'm still waiting, but I have hope in his promise peace in my family, restoration of a relationship with my sister and her family. Someone sent me a picture. Oh, that's so cute, Charlotte. (laughs) It's a little puppy. It's a little puppy gift. I I don't know what kind of dog that is. I want it. That my grown children will choose to walk with the Lord. My best friend has been trying to have a baby for years, and I've been praying for her. My husband's complete physical healing, career, and a true ability to forgive. No mental issues whatsoever. Godly spouses for my kids. Healing from a complicated diagnosis. Healing from cancer. That Roger would give me a shout out during his sermon. (laughs) Kelly Pendlebury, everybody. Now, here's the thing. Well, can we just pause for a moment and hold these before the Lord? Like, do you guys feel the weight of those? Do you just identify with kind of the weakness that we feel oftentimes in that waiting? Lord, we just, we, we lift these up to you. We lift up these hearts. We lift up these people, these families, these children, these parents, these friends. All these hopes and desires that are, are as of yet unmet, where some of these prayers, God, we have lifted up to you for years and years in silence, and this morning we lift them all up together and we say, God, would you hear the cries of our hearts? Would you hear the cries of our hearts? Would you turn your face upon us and would you answer us? Our hope is in you. Now to pray for the rest of our time today, Lord, that your voice would speak loudly and clearly. Let us hear you through your scriptures. Let us come to understand you in new and powerful ways. Let us learn to trust you and hope in you and become more like you, Lord Jesus. So come and speak to us by your Holy Spirit. I pray that your voice would be much louder than my own. Amen. Amen. Thank you all for sharing. I, I, I honor that.
Now, the writer of Hebrews tells us something really interesting, that again, Jesus is able to empathize with our weaknesses, right? Jesus is able to empathize with our weakness. He knows firsthand the struggles and frustrations and pains of being human. But this raises a really important question for us in relation to prayer. Did Jesus ever have an unanswered prayer? Did Jesus ever have an unanswered prayer? Right? Does he empathize with our frustrations over that? Does he, does he actually know firsthand how like, depressing and hopeless that can feel? Does he understand just how wearying it is to hold on to hope year after year after year after year? Did Jesus ever have an unanswered prayer? The answer is yes. This might seem crazy. The Son of God asking the Father for something that's like not happened? Yeah. If that surprises you, it's okay. It doesn't seem like the good Sunday school answer, does it? He has this unanswered prayer, and today's scripture is going to help make sense of all of this. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn with me to John chapter 17. Um, you turn your device on there. You can stop texting me and open your Bible app. Um, or you can just read along on the screens. This is what Jesus is saying to his disciples. Um, he's actually praying to the Father, I should say, this really long prayer. And here's a really interesting section. My prayer is not for them alone, meaning the 12 that he was with. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's you and me. Here's what he's praying. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Jesus has an unanswered prayer, and Jesus' unanswered prayer is for the complete unity of his people. He is still holding out hope for this. It's, it's obvious that the universal church is far from being a reality, right? You don't even have to be a Christian to understand this, right? In fact, it seems as though the farther away that we get chronologically in time from Jesus first praying this prayer, it seems like the more disunified we become as Christians. We're heading in the wrong direction. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. And so Jesus specifically petitions the Father for this to happen in three different phrases that he says, that all of them may be one, that they may be one as we are one, right? Referencing the unity of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that they may be brought to complete unity, right? Not even partial unity. Jesus doesn't want a little bit of unity. He wants all of it. And what I want to pitch to you guys today is this idea that we are the answer or potentially the non-answer to Jesus' prayer for unity. We're the answer to that prayer, or else we are the non-answer to that prayer. So Jesus wants all of his lowercase c churches, right? Like Vineyard Augusta, we're a church, but we're like, we're a lowercase c church. He wants all of his lowercase c churches to ultimately form one capital C church. Now, that doesn't mean that we are all Vineyard, right? Or that we all become Baptist, or that we all become Presbyterian, or that we're all whatever, but that we're a part, actively a part of something larger 
than ourselves. When Jesus looks out on the world, there's a degree to which he sees individual churches, but there's a a more significant degree to when Jesus looks out on the earth, he sees the church, the one. So we're going to see in a second how, this is how the Apostles' Creed puts it. We're we're going to, at the end of the sermon today, we'll confess the entire creed together. But for now, here's this one line. It says that I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. And then it moves on in quick succession to other things. Next week, we'll talk about the local church, which is also an important thing. But there's two really important adjectives here that that I think are absolutely important to have in the creed, and it's important for us to understand. The first one we're not going to talk a lot about, but it's holy, right? And the word holy can sound super religious, but it just means set apart or like uniquely special, right? Whereas Catholic means universal, meaning like universal in extent, like, like there's no point at which the, that church stops and then another church begins, right? This is, this is the giant umbrella under which all churches exist. And what that means is that the, the church, capital C, is something that every believer, every follower of Jesus is a member of. It's also important to understand this, right? That all believers, then we, we are a part of the Catholic universal church, even if they are not Roman Catholic. Does that, you guys you see what I did there, right? Difference in the words. Moreover, every local church, us as a vineyard, vineyard, vineyard church of Augusta, every local church and every denomination, so the entire vineyard, every tradition is also included under this giant umbrella of the universal capital C church. We're all part of the singular church of Jesus, even though we have these diverse ways of expressing and practicing our faith, which I think are fine. The universal church, Catholic, as the Apostles' Creed puts it, is much larger than the Roman Catholic church, um, if that word throws you a little bit. Now, here's a little story. So in 2018, um, Angela and I had this uh, really kind of amazing experience of, of unity that, that really on paper, and maybe even me telling the story a little bit, just doesn't quite quite do it, um, let us experience unity in a way that we had never experienced it. Um, we were invited by Angela's dad, Bob Garrett, um, to this small week-long conference in Rome, Italy called Gathering in the Holy Spirit. And it, and it happens every other year in Rome, like right at Pentecost, right, when we celebrate the Holy Spirit coming. And this Gathering in the Holy Spirit, um, there's maybe 60 or 70 of us there. Is that right, Bob? Something like that. Like, it's not big. Like, I mean, like you split this room in half and that's what we've got, you know? Um, and what it is, is it's an, it's an international, ecumenical, charismatic group working on Christian unity, right? So now it's international because of the like 60 or 70 of us there, uh, there were people from Austria and Germany and Poland and Italy and France and the UK, the US and more. It was, it was mostly like American and Western European, but I believe, if I'm not mistaken, there was even some representation there from South America and Africa as well. It was, it was truly international. Like, I, it's rare in my life that I've heard that many languages all at one time. And a lot of folks there spoke English, and that was kind of like what we did. But there was also folks there that had translators, you know? So you just had translators going the whole time. Now, so it's international. It's, it's ecumenical. Gathering in the Holy Spirit is ecumenical. Ecumenical is a technical term for Christian unity, Right? So if you hear about ecumenism or something like that, that's just a fancy pants term. It makes us sound smarter when we say that. Um, But it's ecumenical because this group was made up of Catholics, Pentecostals, folks from the Apostolic Church, the Anglican Church, Salvation Army. There was even a Baptist guy there, right? It was 
all of these different folks. And they even let us vineyard people in there, right? Um, Angela and I and Bob were there as vineyard folks. Um, the then national director of the Dock Association of Vineyard Churches, that's all the Germanic-speaking churches in Europe, um, the national director of them was there as well with his son. And so it's truly ecumenical because we're from all these variety of traditions and we're worshiping and praying together. But it was also charismatic because you take all these folks together and we all believe and operate in the full gifts of the Holy Spirit, right? Reese talked about this briefly a moment ago. We believe in the full operation of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So there's, there's words of prophecy that come up, right? Words of knowledge and words of encouragement that kind of spontaneously happen. We believe in gifts of healing and we practice tongues and things like that. Um, even the Baptist guy was charismatic. I didn't think they made charismatic Baptists. <laughs> But he was, right? And he, was, he was from the UK, so maybe that means something different in the UK. I've seen, I've seen a whole bunch of like Catholic charismatics, so that didn't weird me out. But a Baptist guy, I was like, that's, that's great. It's great. So here's this group of people, and it was hands down the most multicultural, multilingual, multidenominational worship and prayer I have ever experienced in my life. It was absolutely overwhelming. I felt like, and I've been in a lot of great prayer times, a lot of great worship times, a lot of that stuff, but suddenly I was like, this might be as close to heaven as I've ever felt because there were so many lines and barriers that just didn't exist. And we can't do that every week, right? Even that group can't do it every year. We do it every other year, you know? Um, but one of the guys from this, from this group, Gathering in the Holy Spirit, he's been long involved um, in ecumenical um, conversations and things like this. Um, he's a Pentecostal pastor from France. His name's Peter Dipple. And he might be the most joyful human being I've ever met. Like, like you just walk in the room and like he just has this smile and he has this way of talking that is so sweet. And, and like, it's just just emanates joy, emanates joy. But he gave a talk at one point, and so he's this Pentecostal pastor, right? And, uh, and uh, he, he shared this quote. He said, I'm a Pentecostal pastor, but I'm Catholic. I'm just not Roman Catholic. That is too little for me. <laughs> and only someone like Peter, I feel like, can really get away with saying that kind of thing. But do you hear what he's saying? He's acknowledging that, like, I'm Pentecostal, right? I want to hoot and holler and jump up around with everybody else, but I'm also Catholic, lowercase Catholic, because I recognize that more than that, I'm a part of the big C church. And the reason that I'm not Roman Catholic, to use the word that way, is because even that is too small, right? And I would say that for us, right? Right? Like, I'm a vineyard pastor, but I'm Catholic, because even to be Roman Catholic or to be vineyard is still too small for me. You know, the Roman Catholic Church doesn't have an exclusive claim on the word Catholic any more than the Greek Orthodox Church has a claim on the word Orthodox, right? We believe in Orthodox Christian faith, but that doesn't mean that we're Greek Orthodox. Nor does the Evangelical Free Church have an exclusive claim on the word evangelical, right? We still believe, at least in the purest form of that, in evangelizing and sharing the gospel with people. So we believe in the universal church because Jesus believed in and prayed for and then died for and continues to hold out hope for the universal church. And unity does not mean uniformity, but rather unity embraces diversity. We don't have to look the same and sound the same and worship the same. Now, why does Jesus pray for unity? Why, why, does, he, why does he utter this prayer? 
What's within the heart and mind of Jesus that causes this prayer to bubble up to the surface? I think he prayed this for two reasons that we see in the text here today. First, he says it's because the unity of believers is reflective of the unity of the Godhead. I already mentioned this. God himself is a unity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? And we reflect that. Second is that the unity of believers is the strongest evidence to the world that Jesus is who he said he was and that God really does love the world. He says, then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. You know, what sort of, what sort of good news is it for a divided and contentious world? Are you guys aware the world's like this? We're a hot mess. What good news is it for a divided and contentious world to be invited into more division and contention? They don't want it. They see through that right away. We've got our own problems. Thank you very much. We don't need your Christian problems. May our lives preach the gospel of peace. May our lives preach the gospel of peace. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And thereby we entice others to become children of God as well. So Jesus empathizes with us, right? He wants this to happen so badly. So he empathizes with the pain of our unanswered prayers. But here's a question. Can we empathize with Jesus in his pain over his unanswered prayer? And maybe this feels like a backwards way to think about it. We're like, no, 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 like Jesus is supposed to empathize with me. Like I'm supposed to empathize with him. Let me just, let me just ask this. Like, did, what did you feel stirring in your heart when we were sharing one another's unanswered prayers earlier? Right, like, like what, what did you feel? Like how would you name that to yourself, right? Did you feel that weight in your heart? Did you feel some sinking sensation in the pit of your stomach? Did you feel like a weight come down over you, right? Did you, did you start feeling the hopelessness and weakness of that? Whatever that was, that's what you call empathy. It's someone else's problem, but you are feeling the repercussions of it. In that same way, can we allow ourselves to empathize with Jesus when if he were to text me and said, I'm still praying for the unity of my whole church, right? Can we empathize with him? If our, if our heart is not broken for the unity that Jesus still longs for 2,000 years later, then maybe we've got some work to do. If that just never bothers us, maybe somehow our heart is a little too self-preoccupied or we're not as connected with the heart of Jesus. I don't know. Hold that in prayer before him. See what he wants to say. Now, in order to move the sermon forward, though, I'm going to just assume that you're all with me. Right? Okay? So I'm just going to assume right now, blanket statement, that you're all like, yeah, that's really terrible. My heart is broken for the unity of the church. Great. <laughs> Once again, we are the answer or else we're the non-answer to Jesus' prayer for unity. We're going to be one or the other. We're either part of the solution or we're part of the problem. Now, and take heart here, right? His prayer is specifically for you and me. Do you remember this? He's like, I'm not just praying for these 12. I'm praying for everybody that comes after me. This feels great. Jesus was praying for us. Why? Because he knew that this was going to be really, really hard. (laughs) As history has proven to be the case, this does not come easy. The unity of Christ's church has never been easy. But it's worth the hard work and the suffering and prayer because there's so much at stake for the gospel. 
Again, if our unity is the means by which the world will come to believe, then that's what's at stake. One other person I'll tell you about that we met in Rome, and we've had the, the fortune, good fortune of hanging out with him and spending some time with him since then as well. The, if, if, if Peter Dippel is the most joyful person I've ever met, the most brainiac person I may have ever met is this guy, Johannes Fichtenbauer. That's his name. <laughs> Johannes Fichtenbauer. Just a heck of a good name, right? Um, he's, a, he's a Catholic archdeacon in Austria. It's something like, like all the people who want to become deacons in Austria like have to go through him or like he trains them or something. I don't even understand how all that works, but it's something like that. But he's incredibly brilliant and like, can make these connections between things and can synthesize really complex theologies and contrasting ideas in really, really helpful ways. But he said this in one of his talks as well that's really stuck with me. He said, as long as the church is in disunity, she is hindered in her mission. This is why. This is why it matters. Because as long as we are in disunity, we're hindered in our mission. Not that we can't engage in the mission of Jesus, right? We're not helpless, but we're handicapped a little bit. So let me try to make this a little more practical for you, right? Since we're all on board, right? We all want unity to happen. Let me just give you quick five ways to be the answer to Jesus' prayer for unity. Five just kind of practical things you can do. Number one, I would encourage you to read more widely. Right? As Paul, Paul wrote, he says, we're transformed by the renewing of our minds. Right? And your mind is only renewed if you're introducing new information to it, if you're introducing new thoughts or new ideas or something into it. Right? Reading more widely is going to broaden your understanding. It might even change your mind, although that's not the point. But we have to be able to read folks who are writing from other traditions. We gotta be able to read folks who maybe are saying things very different than the folks in our vineyard tribe might be writing and saying, you know? And sometimes we get this fear of like, oh my gosh, but if we read that book, you know, then I might become a little more Presbyterian or something, right? Like, <laughs> maybe. We won't kick you out though, you know? I mean, like, our minds will change and they'll be renewed, but they're only changed and transformed by reading what other people are saying, it may very well, this is often the case for me, I try to read as widely as possible, oftentimes I'm like, man, that's a really interesting idea, that's a, a fascinating take on this uh, uh, theological point or something, I don't buy it, you know, and here's why, and it strengthens what it is that I believe, but it's only through like honest dialogue, intellectual engagement like that that we get it, so read more widely. Number two, um, we got to take it out of just the mind, though, and make it real. So number two is relate with people from other traditions. This was probably the most powerful aspect of the gathering in the Holy Spirit in Rome, was just like hanging around these people and like doing, doing meals with these people and like late night cocktail hour with these people, you know, like, like rubbing shoulders, you know, like it's just the weirdest thing. I'm like standing out on the patio with a drink, you know, with like a Franciscan friar, like in his little robe and we're... You don't, you, don't, you don't grow and come to value something like that more than just having relationships with people. Um, understanding our doctrinal points will only get us so far. Relationship takes us farther. Love does not exist in the realm of ideas. Love only exists face-to-face -face with real people. So take the time. Put in the relational effort. Make some friends. Number three. Reckon with the dark things that you think or feel towards other traditions. Because here's the thing. You want to know the truth? There are some people that think and feel dark things when they hear the word vineyard. 
whatever, right? But there's some of us in here that we think or feel hard things when I say the word Baptist. There's people in here that we, we think or feel dark things when, when we say the word Anglican, right? And I'm not, I'm not like poo-pooing on you guys. I'm not pointing the finger. This is just part of being human, right? And it's, the answer isn't just to stuff those things down or pretend like they're not there. We just got to reckon with them, right? There's some of you, I'm sure, and people have come and asked me about this, and people have come and asked Reese about this thus far in the sermon series, right? Where, why do we have to read the word Catholic in the creed, Right? Which, if that's been a problem for you, and if that still is, like, and I get, I get it, man, I'm, I'm not throwing guilt on anybody. But if there's a problem for you in your heart that we're about to read the word Catholic together, maybe that's just an indication that there's some understanding in your heart that needs to change. We could change the word, or we could change our hearts. Number four, resist adversarial us-them language and positions. We can only do this once we've dealt with number three right? Once we deal with our hearts, then we take a look at what's the language that we use, right? And us-them language in itself isn't bad. That's how we understand our differences. That's how we embrace our differences, right? By saying, oh, you all are like that? Well, we're like this. And you all do it that way? Well, we do it this way. And you guys think about it like such and such, and we think about it in these terms, right? But that's not adversarial, right? But suddenly, it can become combative, right? So two things on this. One, avoid them within yourself. If you, if you catch yourself caught in that kind of like paradigm, just stop. I would also say, next time you're on Facebook, call out when you hear other Christians engaging in them, right? If you see something, say something, right? That's the way it goes. Because it's one thing for us to mind our manners, so to speak, but it's another thing to just allow other Christians to continually trash talk one another on doctrinal grounds, on theological grounds, on the grounds of our practices or whatever. So resist adversarial us-them language and positions. They are just not helpful. If we're engaging in that, we are the non-answer to Jesus' prayer. And fifth and finally, repeat Jesus' prayer for unity. Repeat Jesus' prayer for unity. Hebrews 7, it's really interesting. Hebrews 7 tells us that Jesus continues to intercede for us. Do you know this? Man, this, this gives me a lot of hope. Jesus, right now, before the Father, is praying for you. And he is praying for me. And he is praying for his church. He didn't just pray for unity for us one time. I believe that this prayer is still ongoing. He's still asking the Father for this. So, Let's just join him in praying for that. Can we do that? What if we just work that into our regular prayers, right? Maybe next time we, we see some evidence of disunity, whether it's small or big or, you know, kind of benign or really ugly, whatever. What if our first instinct is just to stop and to pray? Just to say, Lord, may we be brought to complete unity so that the world will know that you sent Jesus and that you have loved them. Amen. Now, does this feel a little bit challenging? It does to me, right? If it, if it feels a little too hard, if it feels a little too hopeless, it, it probably ought to. <laughs> I think that's just a good sign that you see the challenge for what it is. But take heart. Jesus has prayed for you. And he prayed for you because he knew it was hard. And he continues to pray for you because he knows that it continues to be 
hard. You know, Jesus believes in the universal church. He has prayed for the universal church, and he continues to work for the unity of the universal church. So then we too can believe in the universal church and pray for the universal church and work for the unity of the universal church. Why don't you guys stand with me? As we close by, by just confessing the apostles' creed together. You guys ready? Let's go ahead and throw that up there on the slides. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.